and with the video recording, then we go over to this nifty little thing that plays sounds. And one of the sounds that it plays, I love this thing. It's the intro music to Surreal Politiques. So I can tell you that today is um, uh, August 21st, 2023 is the current year. And this is Surreal Politiques Stage 1, Episode 23, Authenticity. I titled this Authenticity Today. And, you know, with some merit, it has become something of a cliche to say that uh, change is hard, change is difficult. Of course, one could just as easily say the opposite. For things to remain stable actually requires a great deal of effort, believe it or not. Chaos is the default setting. And in chaos, things change uncontrollably, often at an overwhelming pace. In the hysterical debates over climate change, it is often said that the only thing constant about the climate is change. This being but one of the reasons that people need to stop freaking out about the weather. But to be fair to the cliché, it is more often applied to people trying to change themselves, of course. It is often said that people don't change, or that once a so-and-so, always a so-and-so. I expect there is scant data to support this, but it may be and has been said that the best predictor of future behavior is prior behavior, and this is about as close as we can get to an accurate axiom on the subject. People tend to do what they have done before. Our capacity to survive and to succeed is in no small part dependent upon our ability to make reasonable predictions about the future. And so we have a certain inertia to repeat behavior since we know what the results are most likely to be. Then again, a still more notorious cliche is that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. I checked the dictionary. This is fake. Moreover, it would indicate that the whole world had gone insane, and plausible though that theory may be to you, this is not how we tend to define insanity. What everyone does is, by default, considered sane, whatever the merits. Insane people are different from the rest of us, otherwise we would not pathologize their behavior. But perhaps the best explanation for the difficulty of explaining oneself, I'm sorry, (laughs) perhaps the best explanation for the difficulty of changing oneself is one's own perception that they are being inauthentic, no less frequently the fear that they will be perceived as inauthentic by others. One can be forgiven a near-infinite number of sins by both God and man so long as they are honest, but a deceiver is not trusted. His repentance is unbelieved. Better perhaps to be an authentic sinner than to be perceived authentic with all the trappings of righteousness. If you have always dressed a certain way and all of a sudden you adopt a new style, are you wearing a costume? 
There are those who would say that you are, and as surely as one is what they eat, they are certainly no less what they do. So if you change your behavior, are you someone else? Or more to the point, are you pretending to be someone else? As one who has changed their behavior and their clothes more than a few times, I understand this thought process quite well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let us begin with something rather uncontroversial by comparison to what we, uh, we often do and will get into. I once earned a name for myself as a drunk, many times actually. I had so fully embodied the lifestyle of a drunkard that I used to peruse the pages of a rather amusing publication known as Modern Drunkard Magazine, drunkard.com, if you want to check that out. I don't suggest you take any advice from them, but if you want to laugh, you'll get one there. You know, because who wants to be stuck in the past, right? Especially when it's so hard to recall. And during these years, if somebody said Chris Cantwell is a drunk, which was known to happen from time to time, I could only disagree if I had forgotten my name that day, and this was by no means the most frequent of occurrences. And so I considered this a rather plain statement of fact. Chris Cantwell is a drunk. That is part of his identity, a rather central feature, in fact. To try and stop drinking would be inauthentic. And of course, as a drunkard, I found the inauthentic quite difficult to manage because I was constantly drunk and could not remember enough to keep track of lies. Imagine how sick a mind must be to think that one's reputation depends upon being a drunk. That to stop drinking would be to risk perception as a liar. Hopefully you realize that this could charitably be described as silly. Less charitably, it could be described as complete BS. This is more accurately described as what those in the recovery business call rationalizing. It is, in a word, inauthentic. Today I do not drink so much. I should not say that I've not had a drink since I've been home because I would not want to be inauthentic. I can say that despite the fact that I am prohibited by the conditions of my supervised release that I admitted to my probation officer that I visited a bar on my first night out of the halfway house. I can also say that I really liked it. And I can also say that I did not much care for the next morning and that making a habit of this would have not been conducive to my fitness goals. So I have been better behaved since then. And from this, we may say something about the recovery business as well. It is largely inauthentic. The sheer amount of nonsense peddled by these people is staggering indeed. Most of all that they do, I'm sorry, most of all, <laughs> sorry. What they do is staggering indeed. Most of all that they choose seek to become central to one's identity. Identity is such a powerful motivator that making someone a recovering addict, a lifelong distinction which involves a new social circle, meetings, confessions, a higher power, and all the trappings of a religion, that a February of 2020 article at marketresearch.com estimated that the drug and alcohol recovery business is a $42 billion industry in the United States alone. And that estimate came out an entire month before COVID became the top story and liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries were deemed more important than churches. One imagines this number has gone up a bit since then, unless, of course, you know, people just stopped trying to recover or their clients switched to fentanyl and died, either of which is plausible. I, I haven't researched the subject and such will be beyond the scope of what I mean to address today. There was a time also when one could say Chris Cantwell is fat. Today, only liars and people dumb enough to read Wikipedia repeat such lies. Whether one internalizes that they are a drunk or that they are a recovering addict or that they are fat or that they are a Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, atheist, etc., 
These are all identitarian components associated with beliefs, behaviors, and other characteristics that ought to be subject to change. If you are a Democrat and your party decides to start drugging and mutilating children because that former clump of cells now knows that it is transgender in the womb, you ought to be able to change this part of your identity without fearing being inauthentic because your party has gone completely insane. If you are a drunk, you ought to be able to quit drinking. If you are a recovering addict, you ought to be able to declare yourself recovered at some point and move on with your goddamn life instead of slavishly devoting your life to fear of some disease for which there is no firm means of diagnosis. In the state of New Hampshire, one may legally change their name for the bargain price of 150 bucks. Just pay the fee, walk into a courtroom, swear that you are not doing this for any nefarious purpose, and boom, you are a new man, so to speak. I know of many who have done precisely this. I know of more Freemans than Smiths as a consequence, and not one has a blood tie to another. I even know a man named Nobody, an activist and radio personality who is, by any meaningful definition, somebody. All of which is to say, my dear friend, that you can change. There is nothing inauthentic about it. Whatever it is you think you are, simply determine today if that is what you wish to be. And if you conclude it is not, then by all means, pay the 150 bucks. Be a nobody. Be a somebody. Be a freeman. Keep your name. Change your clothes, your diet, your words, your behavior. Whatever it is, just do it, goes the slogan. In an excellent book titled Self-Reliance, the great Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul simply has nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. Ah, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood. Is it so bad, then, to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood, end quote. Are you great? Is that part of your identity? Would you like it to be? I was uh, once foolish enough to be a libertarian, you might have heard, and I was very good at being a libertarian, no matter what the other libertarians may have said. Because I understood all of the characteristics of this political identity, and I repeated them with remarkable consistency. The only justifiable use of force is in defense of person and property. Thus, the state is illegitimate because it relies on coercion for all its means. And since the state is defined by this, since a state which did not so act would not be recognizable as a state, and since force is justified against the behaviors of state and bodies, one is justified in using force against the state. For stating this obvious conclusion aloud, I was deemed a very dangerous man with some merit. Less meritorious was the claim that I was a violent man or an agent of that very state. Such claims were inauthentic. And part of the reason that you know my name today is because I used the obviousness of this to my advantage. The people who attacked me were inconsistent, of course. They were purported adherents to the non-aggression principle, who lacked the courage or consistency or logical coherence to say what that meant. I confronted more noteworthy men than I with the obviousness of this, and whether sincerely deluded about their own beliefs or simply fearing the consequences, they demonstrated the correctness of my position with their responses or lack thereof. And since libertarianism is nonsense, we may learn something from this. One may short-circuit the mind's truth detection system with an illusion of consistency. 
Consistency is but one of the ways we determine the authenticity of a person or a thing. If it remains constant and not subject to change, it is perceived as being more likely to be true than something which changes with great frequency. A man who changes his opinion is naturally suspect. He requires an explanation. When that change of opinion has comforts and conveniences attached to it, say in the case of a politician who adopts a new position on an issue, if that position is more popular or if it appeals to the interests of a target demographic, he may be said to be pandering. God forbid he simply better informs himself and attempts to conform his views to reality. He must find a more plausible explanation than this if he hopes to win re-election. It matters little if his new view is more accurate than his prior view. Inconsistency is its own sin. But if he weathers the storm and comes out the other side, he now has a new position, and this is the view to which he must now remain consistent. So we may say from this that inconsistency is a temporary condition. Similarly, a man who ceases to begin his days with a hangover is eventually remembered not as a recovering alcoholic, but as someone whose conspicuous traits do not include a drinking habit. A man who loses 50 pounds in six months is fat only to those who look at old photos on an Antifa blog, which inauthentically purports to be the sum of all human knowledge. As some of you know, I have a bit of a reputation for foul language. Producing this show was seen as inauthentic to some, a grift, a sellout, a cowering. Inauthentic statements, one and all, thanks in no small part to all of you. In a mere 22 weeks, I am indeed the host of a show that does not curse habitually or centralize themes of race. That show is a legitimate business with customers and a mailing address and a phone number and a website and an SSL certificate and an LLC on file with the Secretary of State and all the trust that is required to accept cryptocurrency and credit cards. Let us imagine an alternative reality wherein I feared being perceived as inauthentic and I feared this so much that I refused to change my behavior and my manner of speaking. Is this the behavior of an honest man? I would say that it is not. That is the behavior of someone who is afraid of being caught. It is an attempt to short-circuit the mind's truth detection systems by giving an air of consistency. And though I have changed my clothes, my speech, my opinions, my behavior, the name of my company, my address, my phone number, my diet, my weight, my muscle mass, my credit score, and my criminal record, and near everything but my name, race, sex, and height, I am proud to say that when I read your comments, and rest assured that I do, the one theme that stands out the most that I notice is people contemplating me on my authenticity. Isn't that odd? And do you know when I see this the most often? It is when I display that most undesirable of features in a man. That's right, you guessed it. Emotion. You're not allowed to do that, you heard. Um, When I uh, have, on no shortage of occasions, found myself brought to tears by the emotional weight of a given moment, none dare call me Glenn Beck, or compare me to Glenn Beck, I should say. I am not complimented on my talent for acting or the quality of my special effects. I am not, at least not by anyone worth listening to, called a weakling or a woman or a homosexual or anything of the sort. Some consider it positively brave that I would allow you to see it. You imagine that? Bravery for crying? Now I've seen it all, huh? Now, crying is a difficult thing to fake. I am glad to say I lack the talent. Fake tears will have one branded a liar more quickly than bragging about one's endowment in the nude. But in addition to this, the perception of 
authenticity here is the behavior being counter to expectations. It is contrary to the perception of consistency. It is so unexpected that it must be real. Now, perhaps in my case, the tears are less unexpected than it might be in the case of some others, but hopefully you get the idea. I am the shock jock, the hardened criminal, the warrior. My archetype does not cry, and so if I do it, it must be sincere. But this on its own actually tells us quite little. On Telegram, uh, a man recently coined the term. Well, I don't know if he coined it or not, but I, I saw it come from uh, a fellow calls himself Longshanks on Telegram not so long ago, and I say he coined it. So as far as I'm concerned, he made this up, and I like it. Um, and I became quite fond of this word, and I vowed to steal the phrase. And being a man of my word, here we are. Hot takeism is a means by which to short-circuit the mind's truth detection systems. A view is so shocking that one who voices this opinion must be speaking his mind without the filters of politeness, and so he is deemed to be authentic. That is, until we figure out that hot takeism is its own subculture. Once we know that hot takeism is its own form of virtue signaling, a means of signifying oneness with the group, it becomes performative, and we must discount it then as a means of truth detection. Not long ago, I entered a telegram group, and as a means of screening out infiltrators, it was demanded that I say the N-word. And they didn't want me to say it like that either. I mean, they just wanted two syllables, uh, you know. Hard R's and all. And without much hesitation, I complied. Not because I'm particularly inclined to do this, but because that was the means of gaining access. And one would be a fool to think that anti-moral, anti-God criminals who tell you they can change their gender would not do exactly this for the sake of obtaining what they want. A hot take these days tells us little other than that the person making the statement wants to be perceived as belonging to a group known for hot takes. At some point, the brave thing to do is to defy that group. If you are immersed in a subculture and your subculture is going off the rails, it is neither brave nor authentic to follow lemmings off a cliff. It is just to the desire to fit in, run amok. But then there is yet another subculture. In fact, it is so popular, we might call it mainstream. And that is contrarianism. You might have seen a little bit of this if you uh, involve yourself in politics at all. One who just has to find himself in perpetual disagreement is no more authentic than he is unique and no more courageous than the lemming. He is following a script all the same and his behavior is performative as it is predictive, pre predictable. And we might go on about this all night, but we all have things to do and I might cut to the chase. There is no axiomatic formula for determining human authenticity. All attempts to find one as a means of screening out bad actors will be subverted by those very actors. The nature of deception is to mimic authenticity, and if there is a formula, they will mimic that, and then it will cease to be such. Attempts to make oneself appear authentic by way of a formula will tend toward that very subversion, since the exercise at some point becomes a performance and not a sincere expression. We began today by talking about change, and though I've bloviated more than a little today, this is what I really mean to get at. I'm not telling you to change. I'm not telling you not to change. I'm not saying that if you change, it will be for the better. Change is too unspecific, and I know too little of you to say. The line above from Walt, Ralph Waldo Emerson is a great one. Say what you think is true. If you think otherwise later, say so. Do what you think is right, and if this proves ill-advised, do something else. Like the climate, the only constant about human beings is change. 
I have some uh, audio queued up from National Public Radio about something called imposter syndrome, which I heard as it aired in 2021, and I found it quite amusing. It was almost, uh, it was most amusing, in fact, for what it lacked, and we'll get to that before we're done. But, of course, to show you what it did not contain would involve playing the whole thing, and that is not a viable form of entertainment for this venue. I have had to think about this some in recent months. You might have heard I made a very conspicuous change in my behavior, and it met mixed reactions. And then I adjusted my behavior yet again accordingly. And I do this as a rather constant process, as it were. Sometimes I have to ask myself, is this all performative? Am I a fake? I can avoid some responsibility for this in a way that you likely cannot. I am a performer. That's actually the whole entire point. I am putting on a show. That's the enterprise. In fact, I'm putting on two shows under different brand names with different subject matter. Yes, of course I'm performing, and you likely lack this luxury. But that is not to say uh, that my authenticity does not matter. Now, since I've read books on detecting deception, and since they warn that one who says that you should trust them likely ought not to be trusted, I'll decline to state what you should think of me, but I can say that I trust myself. Not because I have the best track record of making wise decisions, or even because I am particularly reliable, but because I ruthlessly question myself all of the time. Of all the performative things that I do for your entertainment, confidence is the most preposterous one of them all. It is precisely this that causes me to behave decently to whatever extent I manage to pull this off. And it is this that causes me to try so hard to be good at this job. I'm almost never satisfied with my performance in either realm, and so I always try to improve. And though some of the abuse I put myself through could arguably be described as pathological, this tends to have a positive effect on my output. And this stands in some sincere contrast to the NPR piece that we'll get into presently. The black female, co uh, the black female host believes that she is suffering from something called imposter syndrome. And she is seeking a cure. Let's find out if she discovers one. Have you ever felt like you just weren't good enough? Like maybe you don't deserve to have a seat at the table? And sometimes, does that feeling make you think you're going crazy? I mean, what is that feeling anyway? This is NPR's Life Kit. I'm Diana Opong. On this episode, we're going to explore the imposter phenomenon. I'm on a mission to better understand the factors that contribute to experiencing this feeling. We'll explore what it is, why it happens, who tends to be affected, along with the impact of societal messaging. And to be completely honest, this is a slightly selfish mission, because the thing I want to know most of all, is there a cure? Whoa, all right, well... She wants to know if there's a cure for imposter syndrome. She thinks that she might be an imposter, and she doesn't want to think that about herself. She wants to believe that she's really good at her job and that she belongs there. Let's see how it goes. For me, imposter syndrome feels like... So, um, uh, what I have done here, I should clarify, okay? I have pulled out a bunch of clips from this. The entire playlist that I have here is 15 minutes long, and it's cut up into uh, 13 clips. And so uh, now we're about to hear um, this woman who worked for the New York Times. Uh, she worked at the New York Times. She no longer works at the New York Times. Now she's a podcast editor. And uh, she says that she has suffered from this imposter syndrome thing herself. And she's about to tell us what it feels like. 
like this horrible voice in your head, like this mean girl, she has your voice and she's like, Catherine, you suck. Like she's super mean, <laughs> super mean. <laughs> I was surprised when Catherine told me that she struggles with feeling like an imposter, mainly because I thought feeling like an imposter went away once someone had made it. And to me, she had. I think imposter syndrome doesn't go away just because you achieve certain goals or you have a certain resume or you went to a certain school or you worked at a place like the New York Times. No, it doesn't go away because, well, should I give it away? No, I shouldn't give it away yet. Of course it doesn't go away. It's not supposed, by the way, so I'm going to make fun of these people because um, I think that they're incompetence, okay? I think that they know that they don't belong in their positions, okay? Uh, and so I'm going to make fun of them for that reason. But I, in the same time, I want to draw out a point, okay, which is that I, I go through the same thing. And I actually believe that I'm more talented than people who are much more successful than me. And if you're watching this show, you know that that's true, which is why you're going to go hit that fire button or that thumbs up or whatever it is, right? Because, you know, like you wouldn't want to be an imposter. You, you wouldn't like pretend to be my fan and then not hit the stupid fire button on Odyssey or whatever the um, I think it's a, you know, on GTV, they have something that I want to talk about on Surreal Politics, and then on, you know, Rumble, they got the thumbs up. And then you guys are on BitChute. You know, we got the thing over there, too. So why don't you go ahead, hit the hit the approval button, and also subscribe to the channel while you're at it, because, you know, you wouldn't want to, you know, pretend to be my fan. That would be, you'd be like one of these idiot broads in this thing. Now, I say idiot broads in this thing because these broads are idiots. It's nothing against broads. I love women. Women know that. In 1978, as graduate students, Suzanne Imes and Pauline Rose Clance coined the term imposter phenomenon after realizing they both felt like they weren't good enough to be doing their graduate studies. And many of the female students they were teaching felt the exact same way. So here's an interesting thing that we notice early on. And if you ever listen to NPR, this is not particularly shocking to you because NPR has to insert identity politics into everything clearly. Oh, so you noticed that the female students were having this thing. And um, this is conspicuously uh, happening at a time when we're like trying to push women into this role, right? When uh, society has been like, well, we're adopting feminism as official government policy now. And so that means that all the women have to go to college, grow penises and be men. And the women go there and they're like, you know what? I actually don't have a penis and I don't want to be a man because I was rather enjoying life as a woman. So this feels rather fake to me. And so they are like, I've got an ideal. We'll diagnose you. We'll pathologize your behavior. No, 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 no. You are not, you are not uh, unsuited to your position at all. What is actually happening here is that you are suffering from something called imposter syndrome. When I reached out to Dr. Imes, who's a practicing therapist in Atlanta, Georgia, and she agreed to do this interview, I told her my imposter feelings were raging like a fire. And she told me she understood and that she would be nervous, too. Yeah, of course. Of course you're nervous because um, <laughs> you're clearly an affirmative action hire and you're absolutely justified in feeling like you don't belong where you are. While doing their graduate work, Dr. Imes and Dr. Oh, no, here we go. I first experienced the imposter phenomenon my senior year of high school. My GPA wasn't that great, and I worried I couldn't get into a good college. When I finally did get into college, I felt like a total imposter. 
like I didn't belong or deserve to be there. Of course you didn't. So you didn't have a good grade point average. And then you got into college and you were like, you know what? I don't belong here. Well, gee, I wonder if that had anything to do with a statement of reality. So, uh, you know. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe you're not actually suffering from a pathology after all. While doing their graduate work, Dr. Imes and Dr. Clance's research revealed that there are two types of people. There are people who tend to overestimate their abilities and some people who tend to underestimate their abilities. Oh, my God. Holy People who feel crap. like imposters tend to underestimate their abilities. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense. There's people who overestimate and there's people who underestimate. There are no people at all who accurately assess their talents. That explains everything. And so the people who are suffering from imposter syndrome are underestimating their talents. It's impossible to say that, you know, there's obviously there's not a possible scenario where these people actually accurately assess their talents. And they're saying like, oh, that's right. I had a low GPA. I got into a college I shouldn't have been in. And now I feel like a fool. That's impossible. Okay, thank you very much for clarifying. The imposter phenomenon is a feeling by many high-achieving people that they're not as intelligent, as bright, as creative, as able as other people think they are. And they live in a constant fear that somebody's going to find that out. Yeah, well, I understand that they live in fear that somebody's going to find it out. I just don't think that everybody else thinks that they're talented, right? That's not what's going on, as a matter of fact, right? They're afraid that somebody's going to say out loud what everybody knows to be true. That's what's going on, okay? Now, again, I, I need to stress here. I just explained to you that I go through this thing myself where, like, you know, I question if I'm good enough. I do it all the time. And if I did not do that, then I would not do good. And so— I'm not saying that if you are in a position and you question your ability to perform or if you question, you know, your performance, that you are uh, that you are some kind of affirmative action higher loser. Far from it. If you're listening to this show, it is exceedingly unlikely that you have benefited from affirmative action. Uh, what I am saying is that <laughs> this is NPR. Awareness is a key factor in helping yourself with the imposter phenomenon. The worry and anxiety that comes with feeling like an imposter can show up for people in a variety of ways. There's a cycle that starts with, you may have bad dreams, you may have a lot of worry, you may have a lot of anxiety because you have been given a task to do. Let's say you have some kind of assignment, like doing this podcast and you start feeling anxious about, oh dear, I'm not good enough, I don't know how to do this. So you start worrying about it. You may feel immobilized. You can't get ready for it. You may procrastinate, or you may get started early and just work and work and work and way over prepare. Hearing that definition was really helpful for me because I didn't realize that I was an over-preparer. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been over-preparing. You know what I really need to do is cut down on all that preparation. I keep on showing up for work ready to do my job, and that's really, that's a pathological behavior. I'm glad I came and spoke to this left-wing psychologist. Being able to manage feeling like an imposter may seem hard, and that's because sometimes it is hard. Author and trauma <laughs> therapist Andy Kolber says... 
naming reality helps us find our way through it. Well, this is the thing, right? So this is what I said in the prior segment. You know, they're pathologizing the behavior, okay? And and the way that they—this is what the left does with everything, okay? So you might hear those people—you've you, heard them say this before, that they want to destigmatize mental illness, right? And if you read left-wing bloggers, they will tell you what their mental illnesses are. It's almost like—it's it's getting to the point it's, it's almost like pronouns, right? They're like, hello, my name is Jim, and my pronouns are she, it, and uh, and my mental illness is bipolar depression too and schizophrenia. Like, this will be on your name tag soon enough, you know. Oh, yeah, well, you know, and, and of, of course they all aspire to be autistic. It should almost go without saying. Naming it also means recognizing other people feel like this too. It's a shared experience. So what can you do? Dr. Iam says being kind to yourself, giving yourself credit, and taking stock of your true talents can help. And that yeah, that's right. What you really need to do is give in to mediocrity, okay? If you don't feel like you're performing good enough at your job, what you actually need to do is just be satisfied with your performance and stop right there. Let's take away number two. Have self-compassion. Be self-soothing. Say, I'm going to do okay. I did okay last time. I know enough about this. I don't have to be perfect. Perfectionism gets in the way so much with people with imposter feelings. They have to do it perfectly. They have to be fabulous, not just good. All right, you know about that? Yeah, a <laughs> little bit, a uh -huh. little bit. So if you can learn that you don't have to be perfect. You can just be good. Yeah, just it's be good. It's essential to have grace for yourself. No one is perfect. We're all trying the best we can. No, not, we're, as a matter of fact, we're not all trying the best we can. There's a lot of people who aren't trying at all. And here's somebody who works for NPR who is going to a psychologist and being like, hey, boss, I'd like to go down and talk to this woman about how I can uh, work less hard. Do you mind if I go do that? And he's like, yeah, just make sure and bring a microphone with you, okay? The root cause of all of this. Is this something people just internalize and create all on their own? As a black woman to a black woman, it's also what our culture is telling us. Oh, well, now we get to the root of the matter, isn't it? It's racism, isn't it? Racism is causing you to feel incompetent at your job. And that leads us to takeaway number three. We must acknowledge <laughs> the societal impact. You know... You know, normally I I kind of I prefer to, for you guys to send super chats for me to pay you uh, for me to speak. But when I read your but I just read something great. Now, first of all, I should I should read a super chat over on Entropy, which was sent by Unstable at Best. Now, David Law had while we were off air, David Law sent me a super chat for three dollars. And he said for three dollars, he said FTK. And I'm not going to read that stuff because this is surreal politics, not the radical agenda. Um, unstable at best since $25. Always cheering for you, Chris. Keep drop kicking and long Ding, brother. Now, this is surreal politics, so I'm not going to say what, what the long thing is, okay? But you get the idea. Uh, and uh, let's see here. But I wanted to read this. Blackwater Park, he didn't send me any money, but I'm sure he's a swell guy anyway. You don't have to be perfect or even good. You could just be black and work for NPR. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that was a priceless one. So I'm glad I caught it, my friend. 217-688-1433, if you would like to get on hold. we got a few segments left here, but uh, I will be getting your phone calls pretty soon. That influences this feeling. 
different racial and even gender groups are messaged various things about their place in society. What we see, hear, and read can intensify this phenomenon. Part of the work that I do is putting things into context. Current context, historical context, because that brings a great awareness of where everything fits. That was Dr. Andrea Salazar-Nunez. She's a staff psychologist at the University of Washington Counseling Center, and she also runs her own private practice where she specializes in racial trauma. Oh, so she specializes in racial trauma, and she's here to tell you. She's here to tell NPR that, yeah, well, you know, if you are black and at your job and you feel like you're not doing a good job, it's probably because of racial trauma. And that's what I get paid to do. And I'm good, very good at it. <laughs> so this uh, this racial trauma specialist, I don't know. Is the, I don't know how they diagnose racial trauma. I'm pretty sure I have racial trauma. I've been pepper sprayed and thrown in prison for being white. And so, you know, but, you know, I don't think that she treats my uh, my particular strain of the virus. So what may feel hysterical when you put it in context, it may look more historical. Oh, isn't that wise, huh? Oh, you're not hysterical. It's historical. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not even crazy. You're not misperceiving things. It's history at work. Whoa. What may feel hysterical with context may look historical. Yeah, I know. You found that really amazing. You're like, wow, I wish that I had managed to find that rhyme too. I should have been a, you should be a rapper. I had never thought of it like that before. Hearing that made me feel like maybe I wasn't effective in some way all of these years. Maybe this is why just willing myself to be more confident hadn't been working. So many times, especially for people of color, women of color, like we're gaslighted, dismissed, um, invalidated, um, ignored when we bring up these things. And so then we think we're, you know, going crazy or there's something wrong with me. The first time I experienced a sense of dissonance related to my worth and my skin color was in middle school. A male teacher of color told me that because I was black, I had to work twice as hard as everyone else. Wow. So you had a teacher who was black who told you that you had to work twice as hard as everyone else because you're black. That's interesting. So uh, you were fine. Everything was going all right. And then you were like, oh, this adult told me some left-wing propaganda that I'm doomed for failure and that I have to work twice as hard as everyone else. And here I've been working hard, got myself a government job at NPR, and all I had to do this whole time was give in to mediocrity, which was really my draw the whole entire time. I was only 12. As a Ghanaian immigrant, my parents told me that All we had to do was work hard like everyone else, and we could make a good life for ourselves. So your parents cared about you, and your teacher was a Democrat. So to be told that I had to work twice as hard because of the color of my skin was shocking. Well, you know, too bad it's not shocking anymore, right? People just, you know. But of course, I don't think it's not. Well, that would be shocking, right? That would be shocking if it happened today. If somebody said, hey, because of the color of your skin, you got to work twice as hard. You'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't have to work hard. They're going to do the whole reparations thing like any day now. Like, I'm going to get my college debt for giving a whole nine, you know. I just have to wait for those stupid white people to pay me. Is it fair to say that people of color sort of have a class of contributing factors that other people don't? Yeah. 
For people of color, and especially women of color, that imposter syndrome is influenced by the messaging that we've received from day one, being born as a woman of color, person of color in this country. Well, so like, what is the messaging, by the way? I'm pretty sure that these women are younger than me, by the way, okay? So I'm 43 years old, all right? And when I was in elementary school, okay, I was told that skin color was like hair color. That's what they told me. And now I didn't believe it, obviously, right? I've told you the story that like, when I was a kid, my first experience in race relations was like, I had this, this this boy named Ricky used to come over, and he was and he was black, and I enjoyed Ricky's company. It was fun. He had you know m- different music and stuff, and he told different jokes, and I was like, oh, cool. And you know, and I liked when the kid came over or whatever. But like, his mom was gonna marry this white guy who lived across the street from me. And when I was told that they were get, gonna get married, I asked my mom. I was a little kid. I was preteen. I had no idea, and I, nobody ever told me any of this stuff. I watched like, you know, I watched Different Strokes and uh, the Jeffersons and all this stuff, and so like. You know, nobody had talked to me about race. But when I found out that they were getting married, I asked my mom. I was like, is that legal? <laughs> and, and my mom was like, Shh, don't you don't say that. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry for tattling. Right. And so, you know, I didn't believe what I was told, but I was told my whole life that, you know, the race is like is skin color is like hair color. So what were you young ladies told? Was it like after I got out of elementary school, they were like, listen, Negro, you're going to have to pull your act together because you're a terrible person, (laughs) you know? But my mentor, Catherine, works hard not to dwell on this. I don't want to believe what America thinks of black women. I want to believe that I can do better than that. So I could spend a lot of time paralyzed. Yeah, you want to do better than that. You just don't want to try very hard, I think is kind of the moral of the story here. Or I could put that in a box and be like, you know what? I know what I'm capable of, and I'm going to just show you. Watch me. Yeah, well, maybe you should, instead of, like, whining about it on NPR, you know? You're like, hey, well, you know, I'm so capable, and, I, you know, and I don't think that I am, and all of these people are, you know, telling me that I'm— Who's telling you this? Like, when were they prosecuted for the hate crime, right? How many times did you sue them? This is so completely full of crap. We've talked a lot about women and how this impacts them, but obviously this does impact men and men of color as well. Um, Is that something that you see? And if so, does it manifest in a different way for men than it does women? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question because I think there are some differences in the way it manifests. My name is Nick Fuentes. I'm eight years old. I live in Missoula, Montana, and... I am a Mexican-American. Imposter syndrome has kind of always been there, though I didn't know that's what it was. I wouldn't have called it that for the longest time. Now that I reflect on it, maybe that, that is what I was feeling. I doubt everything that I'm doing, because I don't know if I'm doing a- White supremacy. Right. I don't have a good answer as to why I feel these things. I, I just know that I feel like I'm faking- White nationalism. Until I make it, you know? That was my friend. And that thing he just said about how he didn't realize it at the time, that's really common. The socialization of men in general, they're not really encouraged to to express emotions more like stereotypically. And um, I think that impacts their ability to recognize that I'm feeling like I'm an imposter um, and, and identify that, right? They just right away internalize that there must be something wrong with me, right? Like, why can't I show up? My conversation with Victor made me think of what Catherine said earlier about how she works to not be paralyzed by cultural messaging. But then I wondered, what exactly is the best way to even begin doing that? Dr. Salazar Nunez told me one way to help push through when societal messaging leaves you feeling drained and unworthy 
is to ask for help. That's right. You've got to go out and you've got to seek assistance from your community. And it might go without saying that your community is your race, right? So if you are working at a place and you're black and you think you're not doing a good job, go tell your fellow black coworker, hey, these white people are making me feel insecure. Could you make me feel more secure? And he'd be like, yeah, heck yeah, N-word. And that's takeaway number four. Really making sure they connect with um, community or a support system or at least one other person, right? Because with... A Jewish lawyer, maybe. Um like community or, or another person or, or support system comes um, like validation, right? right? Like, oh, you're experiencing that too? So am I, and we're not alone. Wow, because what you really need is validation, right? If you think you're not doing a good job, what you really need is somebody to tell you that you're doing a great job, you're doing wonderful, don't worry about it, pal. Good job, kiddo. My conversation with Victor made me think of what Catherine said earlier about how she works to not be paralyzed by cultural messaging. But then I wondered, what exactly is the best way to even begin doing that? Dr. Salazar Nunez told me one way to help push through when societal messaging leaves you feeling drained and unworthy is to ask for help. Oh, I know. It, and that's is... takeaway number four. Really making sure they connect with... I know that this sounds repetitive because it is because I have these two clips overlap. I'm sorry. Um, community or a support system or at least one other person, right? Because with... Um, like community or, or another person or, or support system comes um, like validation, right? Like, oh, you're experiencing that too? So am I, and we're not alone. I have spent many years taking pride in being able to figure things out on my own, but that's been a bit of a trap. Yeah, it's a little bit of a trap. You're like, oh, well, I don't want anybody to find out that I'm incompetent, so I'm not going to ask any questions, but I'm a reporter. <laughs> I work for NPR. I'm trying to inform people. And I don't ask questions <laughs> because I'm afraid people will find out I'm a dummy. Catherine shared some good insights on this. I think the message I got was I was supposed to know everything already when I think the best people in the business when it comes to journalism, when it comes to podcasting, are constantly asking questions. You cannot grow if you don't ask for help. It's essential to ask for help. Look to people who you are hoping to learn from and accept that you don't have to be an expert. It won't make you look weak. Create community and build up your support system. I didn't realize it until after the fact, but talking to Victor made me feel better. It was nice to know that he understood exactly what I was talking about. Dr. Eim says there's also another aspect to asking for help though. Ask our friends not to say, you're going to do great. Don't worry about it. Yeah, what you have to do is ask your friends for help. But when they try to help you, tell them they're doing it wrong. That's not helpful. It's sort of dismissing. It's not acknowledging how you feel. So you have to educate your friends about you, how you to know be that with you. You, you know that you're, tell if I was just reading this and didn't tell you, if you didn't hear the women's voices, you'd know you were listening to women at this point, right? They're like, don't, what you need to do is support my emotional outbursts. You need to acknowledge my pain. It has nothing to do with solving the problem or reassuring. You have to, you have to say, I understand. Them how, th what the kind of support that you need right now is not to be told that you're going to be great, but to understand your anxiety, your fear, your feelings, and say, I'll be here for you. Call me when you're done. Letting your friends and support network know how they can help you when you're experiencing imposter feelings 
can help to stabilize you and make you feel grounded as you prepare for that next meeting or phone call where you're feeling unsure of yourself. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to show up at this meeting and everybody's going to realize that um, I'm an affirmative action hire. And uh, I'm wondering if maybe you could tell me that uh, that I'm going to that that you'll that you want me to call you when I'm done. Could you do that? Yeah, sure. Call me when you're done. Okay. thank you so much. You're such a good friend. I think we're all pros now at knowing some ways to master feeling like an imposter. But what I still need to know, is there a cure? So I asked Dr. Imes. Do you ever get over it? Are you ever cured? No, but it does get better. <sighs> okay, not exactly the answer I was hoping here, but it's not all bad news. Dr. Imes says the imposter phenomenon will start to wane as you get older. When I was younger, I had to achieve, achieve, achieve. I have three master's degrees and a doctorate. That is ridiculous. <laughs> it is ridiculous. You've been you spent your whole life in academia and you're like, oh, well, now I now I have a job telling people that they uh, that they can be bad at their job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. But I'm 76 years old and I still love being a psychologist and a therapist. And and you know why she loves being a psychologist and a therapist? Because all her clients are mentally ill. So when they don't improve, she's just like, oh, well, you know, you're sick and crazy. And, um, you know, maybe you should blame racism. I think that, you know, I said, well, okay, I know how to do this, so I have to do it or I should do it. No, I don't have those shoulds the way I used to. And Catherine sees this, too. I would actually say that now that I am 46, I want to dial back on my perfectionism. Look, I don't think it did me any favors. I think I went a little too far. Seriously, cut yourself some slack. Yeah, cut yourself some slack. Don't aspire towards anything because that's racist. What are you, a white supremacist? 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you, t- I mean program, I'm sorry. Uh, if you'd like to be on the program and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Now, the thing is, honestly, what I mean to convey here is not just to make fun of these idiots, but yes, to do that. But at the same time, what what I mean to convey more than anything else is that this is not the way you solve this problem, gentlemen and ladies. Uh, You know, if you're in a position and you don't think that you're meeting expectations or you're not going to be able to meet expectations, first thing that you should do is aspire to meet those expectations, right? Like, Like actually make some effort to do it and make some effort to exceed them. And as a matter of fact, have higher expectations of yourself than the people around you do, okay? Um, when I apologize to you for like a problem that I have here and you guys say it's okay, like I don't believe you. And it's not to, it's not a stain on your reputation that I, that I take that attitude. It's that I demand of myself, you know, more than I'm doing. And that's how I improve. And if you've listened to Radical Agenda from episode one all the way up to stage six, you understand that like it's complete night and day. All right. (laughs) I've completely changed everything about this program myself my body like everything and so that's what happens when you demand of yourself more than you are currently putting out and if you say oh well cut yourself some slack just just accept you know you know and the other thing that i've done by the way is there are times when i've realized i'm being too ambitious okay so if i realize that i'm setting unachievable goals for myself i change my goals okay and you should do that too you know, tr- you know, us aim higher, like, you know, but set achievable goals on the route there. 
And if you're and if you're finding that you're consistently failing to meet your goals, then lower your aim a little bit. You know, that's a realistic way of dealing with things. But of course, NPR isn't going to tell you that. And the other thing that NPR isn't going to tell you, you don't hear it in there, but it's not because I left it out. They never mentioned affirmative action. They never mentioned that. So you're talking about two black women who are saying that, oh, well, I feel uh, I feel like I'm not uh, living up to my standards at work. I got into a college even though I didn't have the GPA, which would have gotten me into that college. And then I felt like an imposter the whole time I was in college. And now I work for NPR, not a commercial radio station. I work for NPR running around complaining about racism. And I feel like perhaps, just perhaps, I'm an imposter. And you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop trying in response to that. <clears throat> well, when your government subsidizes that, don't be surprised when you get more of it. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you tonight? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a little bit uh, triggered because I, I think you hit um, the very foundation of my frustrations lately. You've heard of the NPC theory that about maybe 20% of the population actually has the capacity for internal dialogue? I'm sorry, the NPC theory that 20% of the population has capacity for internal dialogue, is that what you said? Yes, correct. So if you've played a video game, you're a playable character, and you, you come across these... NPCs or non-playable characters within the video game. You talk to them. They have a dialogue tree. They say, greetings, adventurer. I have a quest for you. Will you undertake it? And you have the option to hit either yes or no. Right. So those are NPCs. Yeah, now, I, I get that. Goes I, I, I just want to acknowledge life. that I get uh, that part of it. I understand that, like, okay, the NPC is the non-playable character. The um, All right, continue. You were about to explain it to me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so um, the theory goes only about 20% of the population has internal dialogue, the ability to talk to themselves within their mind and question their own thoughts or themselves and compare themselves to others and how their performance is judged on others, whereas the other 80% of the population are just NPCs. They have no internal dialogue. And you know this because if you talk to them, their responses to you are never unique. It's like they have the same kind of dialogue tree going on, right? So if you are one of these that have the internal dialogue, the ability to think and say to yourself, how do I compare to others? Let me go talk to friends and get their critique or get their um, perceptions of me so I can help compare myself and know that I am doing the best job that I can compared to what the expectations are. So if you have 10 people in a room, you and just one other might have that ability, but the other eight don't. So if, if you happen to miss that second person and all of the people that you are asking for feedback about yourself are NPCs, well, they're not going to give you very good information at all. And you're going to feel like an imposter because you're not one of them. And you're going to assume that you're the common denominator because everybody that you talk to 
are giving you the same critique. Oh, you overthink things. This is my favorite. This is the number one criticism I get. Oh, you overthink things. No, I call that thinking. Why aren't you doing it? So if you do not have somebody in your circle that can also think and can also analyze, you're going to feel like an imposter. And and I think that Go ahead. in a lot of ways there there are many people out there that are very depressed because most of the people around them are NPCs and they don't have somebody in their life that is a playable character who can give them accurate feedback. Does that make sense? So I... I think I understand it. I, I think that it's hard for me to believe that there are human beings who actually lack an internal dialogue. I, I would believe that I would believe that the internal dialogue of most people is more less sophisticated than mine. I think that that you know I think that that's probably obvious. But you know the idea that they just lack an internal dialogue, I, I have trouble with that one. Um, it, it might be said that like. You know, their internal dialogue is of such a level that it is, you know, it, it borders on insignificant. That that would make sense to me. But but that 80 percent of the population was on that level, I, I think is I think is I, I find suspect. I, are, is there a data point like is there like what is it that you're basing that number on? Um, it 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 was a. Uh... Honestly, I think it was something on poll, okay. but it affected me so much because this was along the same lines. Um, okay, uh, let me find another example or, or an example of what an NPC might be thinking, okay? So what they hear in their head is what they saw in the news last or their favorite TV show or they're thinking of lyrics of their favorite song. But anything that flashes in their mind is a recording of something that they've heard previously. It's not something of their own creation. So when you talk to these people, and I would guess that you have had this happen before, you bring up some kind of a uh, subject matter, uh, probably in the political sphere, and the answers that you get from this other person are talking points almost verbatim from what you've seen on CNN for the last week. They don't come up with anything new at all. And their responses are so predictable to be so boring. You just got to you just got to get yourself out of the conversation. Go talk to somebody else. I, I think it like it, when you put it that way, that makes more them, sense to me. They, right. That like that, like, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'll, I'll, I'll let you finish. But like, you know. Put it put that way, it makes more sense, right? Because, um, yeah, I get that some people are not drawing inferences from what they see, right? If if you listen to CNN and you are thinking about what was happening on CNN, you'd probably change the channel, right? It, the only way that you can watch CNN <laughs> is if you if you just accept what they say, and that is it seems to me a preposterous thing to do in the extreme. And so that makes sense. That like basically what you're saying is. You know, these people are, they're not, they're not, um, they're recording it. They're not drawing inferences, say. Yes, exactly. And what, what bothers me so much is how very few people I meet seem to think about 
these topics or what they've heard. Very few. I get dialogue trees so often. I think Elon Musk is correct. I think we're living in a freaking simulation. But, um, or at least I'm beginning to think that. I, <laughs> but it's frustrating to me to the point where I've, I've stopped talking to NPCs because all I get is that dialogue tree, that same thing. Oh, well, 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 Trump, uh, uh, insurrection, uh, uh, horrible, uh, Biden, um, you know, normal. I'm just, I'm so sick of these talking points. And what is very terrifying to me is it, it doesn't seem like it matters if I'm talking to men, if I'm talking to women. Um, very often they come up with verbatim the same lines. I, I'm sure you've seen those clips where people put together all of the different news programs where the anchors are synchronized saying the exact same thing. Have you seen this? Um, where the anchors are saying the exact same. Yes, yes, I've seen those. Yes. Yes. This is reflected to me in my conversations with people. Now, I work in a retail environment, so I get customer after customer, and some of them decide to for whatever, maybe they're lonely, I don't know, but they, but they want to talk about their politics to a person that is showing them to the product they're looking for. And these conversations happen. And so often, they are just a repeat of those, those very anchors saying the exact same thing. And it's terrifying to me to the degree at which people repeat things that I've heard of over and over, but I rarely, rarely hear anything unique out of them. Yeah, yeah, I would say that that so, is rare indeed, and it is, uh, and it's conspicuous. Yeah, so if you are somebody that has that internal dialogue, that thinks about things, and really wants to be a better person, and you are looking for feedback from those around you, more often than not, you are talking to these NPCs that do not judge themselves at all. They don't see themselves... They don't compare their performance with others. They just automatically think NPC things. Well, would you I am say underpaid. Then, I should be paid more. I am overworked, and I'm smarter than everybody else. And this is what all of the NPCs think. So what criticisms are they giving you? Well, I would say that, you know, I, I think that the low intellectual level that you are describing is indicated by the segment that we just heard, but these women are saying that they suffer with this imposter syndrome, and these two things would seem to be contraindicated, no? Well, sort of. In order for you to feel like you are an imposter, you must then be criticizing yourself and have that internal dialogue. But these clinicians that they are talking to are NPCs and are judging them thereby so they do feel like imposters or that they don't belong or that there's something odd. And so they're going about their lives trying to put their finger on what this is. But everybody around them is saying it's racial. So if you're talking to eight other people and they all agree it's a racial issue and you are trying to objectively judge yourself, your performance and your ability to move up, then why wouldn't you see yourself as a common denominator? and say, you know what, maybe they're right, maybe it is racial, and I feel like an imposter, perhaps this is so. And it's just a result of someone who actually has that internal dialogue, but who is talking to NPCs looking for feedback, who doesn't have somebody else in their life that thinks with that internal dialogue to give them better feedback. No? I suppose. I, you know, I... I, I 
I don't buy into this theory, honestly. I, you know, it seems to me that people have an internal dialogue and it is consistent with their intellectual level, you know, um, and that it, it, that dialogue is unsophisticated in the extreme in the case of these women here. And what they're what what's happening is that they're being fed propaganda. You know, that the girl who does the, sh the the host of the show, she was like, oh, well, everything was fine. I was raised as a, my parents were Ghanaian immigrants, and they told me that if I worked hard, that everything, that, that I would succeed. And then she went to school, mm -hmm. and some Democrat teachers union scumbag told her, well, you have to work twice as hard because you're black. And then she was like, oh, well, I now have an excuse to fail. And she failed herself right into NPR. And, you know, that is the, that is a consequence of, I think, an internal dialogue. Now, uh, the other people that she's yeah. interacting with, they are having an internal dialogue, too, and they're being fed the same nonsense. And the internal dialogue is unsophisticated and it's not drawing inferences, you know, like, um, you know, in, in artificial intelligence, well, what they talk about, like in artificial intelligence, um, uh, I'm not an expert in this field, but I've been doing some research on the subject. So, like, I, I, I got this um, this application called GPT for all, which is a. Uh, it, it's an application that is designed to act sort of like ChatGPT. It's a large language model. And GPT for all is something that only uses right. your CPU, okay? So the difference between your CPU and your GPU, your, your central processing unit versus your graphics processing unit. Your graphics processing unit is much faster than your CPU. And so what they say is this only has CPU inference. It doesn't actually use your graphics card. And so it is less sophisticated as a consequence. And the, the GPU inference is much faster. It can thus use many more layers of inferences and thus you have a more sophisticated conversation with the application and it seems to me that these they have they have low levels of inference they they don't have the same sophistication of their dialogue and so when they're fed unsophisticated propaganda like oh it's your skin color you know these white people don't like you mm -hmm. they believe it because their internal dialogue is unsophisticated but i don't think that they lack it i think the npc idea that the idea that they that they lack this is I, I didn't buy into that personally, but I haven't researched it. This is the first time I'm hearing it discussed in this way. Well, it's like the NPCs, they see you as another NPC, and so they're going to be talking to you as though as though you were on that same level. So, um, Well, it, what it is is, is like, that they don't believe— so to a they, teacher, But the thing is that they don't, they, they've been told that there's not differences in intellectual level, right? They don't—they've they, been told that that is a racist idea or whatever, you know? That's part of the problem. The, the idea that sure. somebody is smarter than somebody yeah. else is actually like they don't believe that that's true. It's just you you were you had the privilege to go to school longer than I did or something like that. They, they don't they've been told a lie. And because they've been lied to and they and they are unsophisticated, they they believe lies that are obviously disproven by a little bit of thinking. Uh, and so, you know, that's uh, what I think. it right. is. Right. You know? Well, I mean, exactly. So, so NPCs don't think about these things. They repeat. So if they hear the same message over and over and over, they just accept it and they repeat it. And they find themselves in positions of power, like, like in a teacher position, or they might even be your boss at work. The problem is being somebody with internal dialogue trying to better yourself, you're going to seek sources. And because you assume you're in a meritocracy and those that work hard – rise above, you will seek your betters, your superiors for advice and information. So you're going to your teachers, you're going to your boss and saying, look, um, what do I need to do to be better? 
And because they are NPCs, they find themselves in these particular positions, they will then repeat the lie that they hear. And as the person that is going to your superiors, you trust them because they must be there for a reason, right? Because meritocracy. And then they tell you this lie, and you hear it over and over and over again. You tend to believe it, but it doesn't make sense because you're thinking about it. And because of this, it, it doesn't make any sense, so therefore imposter syndrome yeah i you know i think that we're uh, i'll tell you what i'm going to let you go just because i think that we've exhausted the point it's not that they don't have an internal dialogue it's a it's that the internal dialogue is unsophisticated and it, and it comes out to have the equivalence of what you're talking about so i uh i do appreciate the call dear and i thank you very much for it and i wish you a very good night um ladies and gentlemen uh 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program dial the phone right now because if you don't then i'm going to end the show while I do, um, while I wait to see if you take that hint, let me go over here and uh, pull up one news story, and then we will uh, we will we'll pull up something here. Libs of TikTok claims. What is that you're talking about? Shut up. Something magical happened in Budapest when Tucker spoke. No. Oh, well, that's pretty funny. Elections are bad for democracy, according to the New York Times, because because they have a very unsophisticated internal dialogue and they hire a bunch of people who think that they're that their incompetence is a consequence of imposter syndrome and not their actual incompetence. And so let's see what The New York Times has to say about elections being bad for democracy. <clears throat> they literally said it. Elections are bad for democracy is the headline at The New York Times. This was published today. <clears throat> by a fellow by the name of Adam Grant, who I'm sure is, uh, he probably struggles, struggles deeply with imposter syndrome, but he's all over it now because he's embraced his mediocrity. On the eve of the first election debate of 2024 presidential race, trust in government is rivaling historic lows. Officials have been working hard to safeguard elections and assure citizens of their integrity. But if we want public office to have integrity, we might be better off eliminating elections altogether. Well, that's interesting. <clears throat> Um, who's trying very hard to um, restore faith in our elections? Who's doing that? Oh, the people who are prosecuting the president for... <laughs> that's what he means. The people who say, you better believe in the election or you go to jail. <laughs> They're working very hard to restore faith in the system, aren't they? Don't you dare criticize us or we'll lock you up. That's how you restore faith in the system, don't you know? If you think that sounds anti-democratic, think again. The ancient Greeks invented democracy, and in Athens, many government officials were selected through sortition, a random lottery from a pool of candidates. In the United States, we already use a version of a lottery to select jurors. What if we did the same with mayors, governors, legislators, justices, and even presidents? I don't know. Maybe this stupid NPR broad would be president of the United States. How do you think that that would work out? I'm sure Adam Grant thinks it would be great. People expect leaders to be chosen at random to be less effective than those picked systematically. But in multiple experiments led by the psychologist Alexander Haslam, the opposite held true. Groups actually made smarter decisions when leaders were chosen at random than when they were selected, elected, I should say, by a group or chosen based on leadership skill. Well, wait a second. Um, if they were chosen based on leadership skill, that would uh, necessarily indicate that they were better than the average person at being leaders. And so I think that your data is faulty. 
Why were randomly chosen leaders more effective? Well, probably because voters are stupid and listen to NPR. But that's not what Adam Grant thinks. They led more democratically, he says. Systematically selected leaders can undermine group goals, Dr. Haslam and his colleagues suggest, because they have a tendency to assert their personal superiority. When you're anointed by the group, it can quickly go to your head. I'm the chosen one. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to if you won the lottery. You ever known anybody who won the lottery? I knew somebody who won the lottery. And boy, let me tell you, getting chosen at random does not improve that situation in the slightest. When you know you're picked at random, you don't experience enough power to be corrupted by it. Well, as a matter of fact, if you're the president of the United States, I would imagine you do. But, you know, why would Adam Grant consider that? Instead, you feel a heightened sense of responsibility. I did nothing to earn this, so I need to make sure I represent the group well. Well, the woman at NPR didn't earn her college degree or her job at the government radio station, and she doesn't seem to feel any responsibility at all. She just blames it on racism. And in one of the Islam experiments, when a leader was selected at random, members were more likely to stand by the group's decisions. Oh, that's interesting. Over the years, I've floated the idea of sortition with a number of current members of Congress. Their immediate concern is ability. How do we make sure the citizens chosen randomly are capable of governing? Oh, well, how indeed. In ancient Athens, people had a choice about whether to participate in the lottery. They also had to pass an examination of their capacity to exercise public rights and duties. Oh, there we go. So what you will do is you will issue a test of um, uh, certification. And if you say that men can become women, then you are suited to run for office. And if you say that sex is real, well, then you are a Nazi and you must be executed. In America, imagine that anyone who wants to enter the pool has to pass a civics test to the same standard as immigrants applying for citizenship. We might wind up with leaders who understand the Constitution. I got an idea. Maybe if we had voters take that test, what do you say? Oh, no, that would require them to, like, speak English and stuff, and that would ruin the whole project. A lottery would also improve our odds of avoiding the worst candidates in the first place. When it comes to character, our elected officials aren't exactly crushing it. To paraphrase William F. Buckley Jr., I'd rather be governed by the first 535 people in the phone book. That's because the people most drawn to power are usually the least fit to wield it. The most dangerous traits in a leader are what psychologists call the dark triad of personality traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. What these traits share is a willingness to exploit others for personal gain. People with dark triad traits tend to work at the New York Times. No, that's not what he said. I'm sorry. I was. That's a typo. No, that's not. It's just me just talking badly about the New York Times. People with dark triad traits, traits tend to be more politically ambitious. They're attracted to authority for its own sake. But we fall. We often fall under its spell. Is that you, George Santos? In a study of elections worldwide, candidates who were rated by experts as having high psychopathy scores actually did better at the ballot box. In the United States, presidents assessed as having psychop psychopathic and narcissistic tendencies were more persuasive with the public than their peers. A common explanation is that they are masters of fearless dominance and superficial charm, and we mistake their confidence for competence. Sadly, it starts early. Even kids who display narcissistic personality traits get more leadership nominations and claim to be better leaders. They aren't, according to Adam Grant. Now, I'm not sure Adam Grant actually knows. Because, of course, you know, what, what is obviously lost here is that, you know, 
Um, if you propagandize a population to believe nonsense things, as we do in this country, when people read the New York Times and they listen to NPR and they think that their incompetence is not incompetence, it's just those white racists ruining your career. Well, obviously, if the people believe those things, then those people have to be lied to, and that's who wins the election, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how these things work, Adam. And so maybe if you went on the pages of the New York Times and you said, stop complaining about your own incompetence and blaming other people for your insecurity, maybe they would vote better. But you're not going to do that. You're just going to say, hey, look, we've made these people so damn stupid that they can't elect their own leader. So we'll draw straws. <laughs> and by the way, like I'm actually not like I'm disagreeing with his assessment of the problem. OK. I, I agree with William F. Buckley that I might prefer to be governed by the first 535 people in the phone book, so long as you all change your name to the number one or zero or something. You know, I don't know about all those A's, but, you know, if you start your if you change your name to hashtag or something, you know, then fine. I'll be I'll be governed by the first 535 people to download this podcast. No problem. <coughs> Besides, if Lincoln were alive now, it's hard to imagine that he'd even put his top hat in the ring. Oh, yeah, because Abraham Lincoln was a swell guy, and he would never do anything wrong. He wasn't like a power-hungry tyrant who was like, hey, I'm going to lie to you about my intention for what to do with this whole slave thing. <laughs> a lottery would give a fair shot to people who aren't tall enough or male enough to win. That's right. That's right, because this is all sexism. Don't you know, if we just had Hillary Clinton, we wouldn't even have to worry about this whole democracy thing. She was going to save it. And then that dumb Trump guy won because you're all a bunch of misogynists. She just kept Obama in there, just called the whole thing off. <laughs> Our broken campaign finance system lets the rich and powerful buy their way into races while preventing people without money or influence from getting on the ballot. You know what we really need? You know what we should probably do? We need more George Floyds for president. That's what we really need. You know, if we could just be governed by the first 535 people to be arrested in Milwaukee, that would probably straighten the whole thing out now that I'm thinking about it. Um, and so... Switching to sortition would save a lot of money, too. The 2020 elections alone cost upward of $14 billion. And there's no campaign. And if there's no campaign, there are no special interests offering to help pay for it. Because, of course, you know, there's no way that, you know, here's the thing. What you do is you just change the way things are now. And then all the ways that people corrupt things would be gone. And then there would be no more ways of corrupting them because I'm an idiot who writes for The New York Times. Finally, no voting means no boundaries to gerrymander and no electoral college to dispute. Instead of questioning whether millions of ballots were counted accurately, we could watch the lottery live like we do with teams getting their lottery picks in the NBA draft. Well, there you go. If we just had Congress look a lot more like the NBA draft, then everybody at the New York Times would be really happy about that. Other countries have begun to see the promise of sortition. Two decades ago, Canadian provinces and the Dutch government started using sortition to create citizens' assemblies that generated ideas for improving democracy. Hey, you, um, let's get you in here, and we'll just have you decide how democracy works. We'll do that, okay? Uh, you, don't, you, haven't, you don't have any thought crime on your record, right? Let me check your Facebook real quick, make sure that you believe the same things I do, and then you can figure the democracy thing out for us. In Bolivia, the nonprofit Democracy in Practice works with schools to replace student council elections with lotteries. 
Instead of elevating the usual suspects, it become it welcomes a wider range of students to lead and solve real-world problems in their schools and their communities. As we prepare for America to turn 250 years old, it may be time to rethink and renew our approach to choosing officials. The lifeblood of a democracy is the active participation of the people, unless it isn't. <laughs> There is nothing more democratic than offering each and every citizen an equal opportunity to lead. Yeah. Actually, I think that that, yeah, there's probably something, you know, more democratic than that, which is like holding a democratic election. Now, I'm not particularly attached to democratic elections. Like, we could call the whole thing off, okay? I just don't think that drawing straws and having random people govern with an iron fist for, you know, just, hey, I got an idea. Here's what we'll do. We'll have this, uh, you know, we got this Constitution thing, right? And the Constitution says that we're going to have an election every four years. And the guys who get elected, you know, there's only like a limited number of things that they could do. Let's throw that whole thing out the window. We'll all draw straws. And whoever gets in there, they do whatever they want. Sounds to me like what Adam Grant is talking about. Because he's not talking about anything that pertains to like the limits on the office, of course. And if you just had random fools going to like, okay, so I'll tell you what. Hey, uh, you, you, g go wipe your, clean that stuff off of you. Come over here, you're president now, okay? And um, we're going to go, get, just put, leave the needle there. Leave the needle there, okay? Yeah, just, well, there's more at the White House. Uh, Hunter Biden's got them. Leave the needle there. I'm, I'm serious. Leave it there. Now, now you're president of the United States. Um, please do govern us wisely, okay? These men over here, they have lots of money. They're going to help you out. Um, don't take any of their money, okay? Just don't. You, look, you have. You, we don't do the campaign finance thing anymore. They're not allowed to donate to you. Um, like you could sell, you know, whatever you want. If you want to have like speaking fees, you do that. That's fine. But no more donations. And so uh, you go do that, and then you run the country. And uh, you know, there's the war over there. So straighten that out if you would, because we're gonna get kind of sick of it pretty soon. Um, and if you don't, can you, can you, can you, by the way, solve the whole poverty thing? I know that you were sort of struggling with that and maybe, maybe you understand it better. And there we go. And so, uh, I think that that's probably a bad idea, but you know, what's a great idea paying me. You could go over to surrealpolitics.com slash join and you could become a member. And if you did that, then you wouldn't have had to wait a month to catch the thing that I put out there called on beauty. Um, if you are on my Odyssey channel or if you download the podcast from the uh, ChristopherCantwell.net audio feed or if you download it from the Surreal Politics audio feed, you might have heard this. And it was really good. I think it was really good. A lot of people told me it was really good. Um, it's a little slow. It starts a little slow. Uh, if you got to the end of it, then uh, you might have understood why I believe it's very good. And if you didn't, then, well, you know, I feel very bad for you. So, uh, you know, that uh, aired on July 12th. And because other people paid to hear that, I had to wait a whole month to give it to you. Do you want to wait a month to get, like, the best stuff that I do? No, you do not. So go ahead. Go to surrealpolitics.com slash join. It's 10 bucks a month, but if you use code AGENDA33, you'll get your first three months for 33% off. And that would be a great idea because that's math. Okay? And by the way, at surrealpolitics.com slash shop, we have other things you could buy, like T-shirts and stuff. And you could look really, really good in one of my T-shirts or one of my hats. You could probably, you could even use like a mouse pad for your mouse, and then you wouldn't be like, why isn't it moving? None of this stuff would happen. Everything would be, you know, I straighten out all your problems. You go to surrealpolitics.com slash shop, but you got to become a member first. You don't actually have to. You could pay full price if you want to. But if you become a member first, then you get discounts in the shop. And then you only see the member prices when you're a member, okay? 
So like you're missing, you don't even know what the prices are until you go ahead and pay me. So go ahead and do that. And if you want to pay me more than that, there's ways for you to do that at uh, surrealpolitics.com slash donate, uh, such as my cash app, which is uh, dollar sign edgy Chris is my hash is my cash tag. And you can give me money on strike payments if you want, which is Cantwell. I'm pr- pretty sure it is. Just make sure of that. And you can uh, you can go to givesendgo.com slash SPM, and then you can give money money over there. Or you can give me cryptocurrency. I like cryptocurrency. It's in the toilet, the crypto markets. It actually came back up a little bit. It's coming back up. You should have bought it when I told you. You guys don't listen. You guys don't listen. If you had only done what I told you to, you'd be all set. So keep on listening. Follow my instructions from now on, and maybe you'll make a buck, and then you can give it to me because that would be a really good idea. And so we'll be back. Oh, I, hang on a second. I should tell you. The members, the people who are members, usually we do the member chat on Wednesday. Wednesday is the uh, Republican primary debate. And so um, because I'm more loyal to the Republican Party than the people who pay me, I'm, only, I'm, I'm mostly kidding about that. I care very much about you. But because this is important and I want to be able to talk about it, and because I'm going to be meeting some of you at the uh, gathering— uh, this Wednesday, I will not be doing a live member show. You should be on my email list. Uh, you can get on uh, surrealpolitics.com slash newsletter or christophercantwell.net slash subscribe. Either way, you'll get my newsletters. And then I keep you informed about announcements and stuff. You don't want to miss when I tell you important things like this. And so you should definitely get on signed up. Go to christophercantwell.net because then you get everything. Surrealpolitics.com slash newsletter will give you only surreal politics stuff. And if you have delicate ears, then maybe you do that. But if you are not of uh, delicate uh, sensibilities, then just get on the ChristopherCantwell.net newsletter, and then, you, then you'll get everything. And I will keep you informed about what's going on with member chats and all of that. And you should definitely do that because then you won't be surprised when you show up at 930 on Wednesday and I'm not there. And then uh, you'll be like, why didn't why you? I paid you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to we'll make it up to you. I promise. OK, I, and when I the reason that I tell you to get on the email is just so I can inform you of how I'm going to make it up to you is kind of the important feature here. OK, so do all of those things. Give me the money. Get on the newsletter. You follow me on Twitter. It's Talk Radio Deity, not the Talk Radio God thing. That's Twitter. I'm on X now. It's Talk Radio Deity. You can follow me on Telegram. Follow Chris. Or Surreal Politics on Telegram as well. You know, again, delicate sensibilities or whatever. But, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, we had a good time tonight. You guys hit that fire button, right? You subscribe. You did all those things because, you know, you don't. What are you, an imposter? Uh-huh.